This week on Hacker in the Fed, another zero-click exploit attacking iPhones via the iMessage app. Millions of PC motherboards may be downloading malware. The FTC slams another company for violations. Security researchers find a vulnerability in Gmail's checkmark system that is already being abused. And the Dutch government now mandates an easy way to contact website administrators. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how's it going today? Pretty good, pretty good. Busy, as always. Busy's good, busy's good. We had a very good uh, before the mics turned on conversation. I enjoyed that one. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic, huh? Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of interesting (laughs) things. Yeah. We'll let your little snicker there, let the audience uh, wonder (laughs) what we were talking about. You know what? The one thing I'll say is that... um, the conversations that we, we tend to have are pretty interesting. They, they're very broad. It's not specific. Like, we don't sit here and nerd out on cybersecurity. I'll let you guys know this right now. No. No, we do not. <laughs> We're talking about politics and, like, you know, it's basically everyday, you know, New Yorker stuff or whatever, U.S. stuff. But, yeah, no, that was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, uh, to be honest, I, I've said it before. I probably said it last week. It's my favorite part of the week. That part, that conversation that we have for, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour, my sure. favorite, favorite part of the week. So. You know, you can call me, right? You can, you, can, you can pick up your phone and call me anytime. I know, I know. But sometimes, every, I feel like every time we get into a deep conversation that's about, like, cybersecurity or anything, I'm like, ah, save it for the pod, save it for the pod. I got you, but I got you. It's all good. So, um, anything going on in your world that uh, you want to report back to the audience? Yeah, there's some cool things happening. I can't really talk about it right now. Hopefully, I have some great updates. Yeah, hopefully, I have some great updates very soon. Shout out to the audience here. They're going to hear some fun stuff soon. But uh, but right now, i got to keep it under wraps, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, things at Naxo are going well. Oh, uh, we got some job postings out there. I think this week, we got to go through and start picking out people for these postings. Yeah. Um, I got a new case this week just based on being on the Lex Friedman podcast. So, really? Yeah, that was always good. They said they found me on Lex Friedman, so interesting stuff there so hopefully one day they'll hear, hear us on here and be like oh we want to hire those guys but hasn't no, actually it has we have gotten a couple people from the podcast all right okay yeah. that's good yeah some podcast listeners out there so it's well the, the the coolest thing i've experienced so far is when i go to an event or something yeah and people are like yo i listen to your podcast i'm like no way get out of here yeah, it's strange to me. Like I did uh, that big uh, Amazon one out in Vegas, and people are like, "Oh, I love the podcast." And uh, can we take pictures? And I was like, taking pictures with people and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I got I got recognized on the plane. On yeah, I got recognized on the plane. I was heading down to Miami a few weeks ago, and this guy was like, "Hey, you're Hector, right?" I'm like, "Uh huh." He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> I listen to your podcast. I was like, okay, cool, man. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it could have gone a whole different direction. You know, you hit yeah, me one I mean, day. It could have been a hit, you know yeah. what I mean? But no, yeah. the dude was like, no, no, listen to your show. I'm like, cool. Yeah, man, sit there, bro. Let's talk. Hey, you're Hector. You've been served. Uh, oh, that too. Yeah, that's the worst. So, so. I had actually had an event come in this week. Uh, they wanted me to go play the uh, the Dallas Stadium, the, the Cowboys Stadium. Nah, get yeah, out of here. I know. It's huge. That's a... That's a Awesome venue. So, unfortunately, the dates didn't work out, but I'm hoping oh. that they said they might be able to move a couple things around and, okay. and get the dates to work. But but that'll be exciting if I could do that. Anyways, probably should get on to the what the big news in cybersecurity this week. Are you ready to start hitting some of these stories? Yeah, there's some big stories. Um, I think that you know some of these are going to be very interesting. So strap in, ladies and gents, because it's about to get wild. 
So the first story you sent over, it's about a new iOS uh, zero-click exploit. That was one of our biggest shows when we went through Pegasus uh, for the last zero-click. But it Mm -hmm. looks like there's a new one out there. Operation Triangulation. Oh, this sounds fancy. It does. It sounds like it's three-sided to me. Yeah, it's multiple (laughs) syllables there, man. Wow. I'm blown away. Yeah, triangulation isn't exactly the easiest word to to say in a podcast. It's a a little scary, to be honest. Well, thankfully, it's not like, you know, some fancy dancing bear, breakdance bear or something. So I'm glad it's uh, it's a bit different uh, this time. So anyways, what happened in this one was uh, a security company noticed that there was some uh, weird network traffic on their corporate Wi-Fi for mm-hmm. uh, their, do- their their mobile devices. A little bit suspicious that the activity originated from their iOS devices. And so what they did is created some offline backups, started looking into it, and they found that they had been infected with a zero-click exploit via iMessage platform, just like Pegasus before. Pretty scary. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, apparently the, these attacks go back to like 2019. I mean, this is something that, you know, it's always interesting to hear or read the post-intrusion, post-compromise, uh, you know, threat intel reports. It's always interesting to also see like the kind of indicators of compromise that are being used or methodology. I know we're going to get into the details shortly, but I have to say that for something like that to, to kind of, Take, take place over a span of four years, and uh, a security company is recognizing that now. It's pretty bizarre. Imagine the targets that were hit uh, between that time. Oh, I'm sure it was a ton. So, yeah, we'll get back and forth on who's saying who did what, but let's kind of go through what the attack was. So we're okay. seeing uh, the attack was for iOS devices uh, that receive a message, They re- like, you know, a normal message, and then an attachment or part of the message was an exploit. Um, without any interaction to the phone. So, you know, your your phone's sitting on your nightstand as you sleep at night, the message comes in, and it triggers the vulnerability, which leads to code execution. And then the code within the exploited download downloads several uh, stages from a, a command and control server that includes additional exploits and privilege exploit... Uh, ex- it, it's raised up. <laughs> Why can't yeah. I say that word? A nice privilege escalation. <laughs> Thank you, know you. I mean? escalation, man. So, but then after the uh, exploitation, um, the payload is downloaded from the CNC, and all the full features of the platform are uh, exploited. And the initial message uh, and the exploit is delete, and the attachment is deleted. If it happens while you're sleeping, you don't even see anything come in. Interesting, yeah. And so, you know, for the folks that always hit us up about terminology and verbiage and all that stuff. In this case, CNC's command and control, we've mentioned a thousand times in the past, is is interesting to see how kind of like the methodology is usually the same with these kind of exploits. The exploit or vulnerability itself is usually quite complex. It may be multi-stage, but once the compromise happens, it tends to get a bit redundant when you start looking at all these different reports. I mean, I, I'm sure you could agree with that, Chris. A lot of these post-intrusion uh, scenarios always kind of end up in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's the same sort of attack vector. It's the same sort of, uh, you know, backend stuff. But, you know, let, talking about the attack and how the message comes in, and you don't have to do anything. Do you know in, in the iMessages or iOS, like, why is it allowed to run code in the background? Do you know? Well, um, I mean, I'm sure that running code is not the purpose behind the functionality. Um, the reason why anything would be previewed, right? This is kind of what we would, if for folks out there that have ever used like Outlook Express or similar, maybe a mail client um, or even a chat client where someone sends you a link and before you click on the link, you see like a, like a, a small screenshot or image or maybe even the, the link title of the link that's sent to you. Um, it's kind of like a, you're seeing a preview of, of what that link is. Depending on the service, the service itself will play man in the middle and fetch the content on that link and then present to you something, right? Um, in some other cases, you might have your client, your email client, fetch the data itself and, you know, kind of introduce the attack automatically to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I would say a lot of the functionality that, that I kind of mentioned there is for, you know, ease of use, to make it easier for the, for the users to, to kind of use the product, use the client, um, see what's behind the link, but you know you're kind of opening up yourself to like an attack automatically, right? 
In the case of iMessage, I am not sure if that's even the uh, the point of iMessage processing, you know, content or payloads, you know, uh, automatically like that. I'm not really sure you could even disable that. I mean, is that something you know about on iPhone? Can you, one, block unknown content from unknown users? Is that even a thing for you guys, for the iPhone users? So I did a little research on that part of it. So what I read on Apple's website this afternoon is that, well, one on Android, you can't. You can block you can block it so you only receive messages from people that are in your contact list. So now obviously someone could spoof, you know, the contact number and get it by you. But, you know, I think it's made, that just adds another layer to the attack. In on an iPhone, I did not see a way where you can block people that aren't. You can block people that are in your contact list. Like let's say I didn't want to receive any more text from Hector. I would say I would look up, you know, your name and hit block. No more text, but and you can also filter for people that aren't in your contact list. Um, but you still receive those text messages; they just get filtered into a different category. Got you, yeah. And I, you know that's that's interesting, right? Because I've seen some folks on like Infosec Twitter. I think even from the security company that was targeted, some of their employees said um, that lockdown mode for Apple might help you in some cases. Uh, I'm not sure if it would stop or mitigate this specific attack, but it's definitely worth investigating some more. I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not an Apple user, so I can't really provide more context, but it seems like Apple may be introducing more security features to kind of help mitigate these kind of attacks. This is this is not the first time. This isn't the first time, and, and this is kind of the same attack vector that we talk about with Pegasus. You know, Like you said, you know, this is, has been going on since 2019. As of, you know, it's still going as of June of 2023, as of right now, as we're recording. Uh, it's still an ongoing problem, and it's it's affecting devices that are up to you know iOS fifteen point seven. Now, the one thing that seems to be a little bit different is that this is not persistent. Interesting. Yeah. So a, a phone reset sort of blows this away, or a phone you know on off kind of blows yeah. this away. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something that Apple has fixed, but. You know, they might want to look into fixing iMessage that doesn't, you know, preview this stuff, you know, or, you know, yeah, we, you might not be able to have confetti on your birthday when you get a, <laughs> a text message, but, uh, sure. but people, you know, uh, probably shouldn't. And let me ask you that. This is a little, little tangent. I, you know, I love going off on tangents. Sure. If you go to text someone, do you text someone for their birthday or do you call them or how do you handle like your friends having a birthday? It depends. If it's uh, close family members, I call them right there at midnight or at midnight. Um, if they're like friends and they're within the circle, I might shoot them a quick text. So if you go into your text message and you see that the last time you texted this friend was happy birthday, yep. what, what do you do? How do you handle that? I will probably repeat the process and until maybe the third year and I'll stop messaging them. <laughs> I always do the second year, but I say it with, yeah. hey, man, I lost your text for my birthday. It doesn't mm. seem to be in this chain. Wow. That is, <laughs> yo, that is that is passive aggressive. Man. Oh, big time, big time. But wow. uh, <laughs> I, just, I just find it weird that if my only relationship with you is to wish you a text happy birthday every year, it's a little uh, it's a little much. Well, at that point, yeah, the relationship is phasing off. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, but I did some quick reading here. So, yeah, it seems yeah. like lockdown mode would disable links and link previews. So for you iPhone users out there, definitely investigate lockdown mode. Um, you might want to uh, include that as part of your, uh, you know, security posture moving forward. You know, as 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 part of your process of of you know securing your devices. What else but, yeah. do you lose with lockdown mode? Do you know? I mean, you know, I'm not really sure. All right, I, I know that you know folks out there that have iPhones could definitely look into it more. But you know, the the big problem here is okay, you get a message, and the software that processes the message. It's, um, for example, if there's a link involved, we'll start to process that link. It'll do a link preview. Now, I can't say for sure. I don't have the full technical details on this attack. I'm not even sure the technical details on the exploit itself is publicly available, at least not yet. Um, and I'm sure we'll get some more updates maybe by the next next episode if there's more research that comes out. But yeah, no, you know, I, I think that, you know, at, le at the very least, looking into an investigating lockdown mode is, is definitely a step forward. Otherwise, you guys, you Apple users are in a bad place, at least for now, um, until, you know, this issue is, is kind of uh, uh, dealt with by the vendor. It seems like there's a latest update here uh, of 
it might mitigate this issue. Again, I'm not 100% sure. But, um, you know, as always, you, we always talk about, hey, you want to make sure that your, your devices are updated, your systems are updated as, as often as possible. And we also let you guys know that in a case of a zero-day attack, there's not really much that you can do. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's all about how you deal with risk. You always have to kind of assess your risk. If you're using the iPhone for personal stuff and it's not associated to your work, you, there's always a chance you may have an attacker, a persistent attacker, trying to compromise your personal life by means of attacking your phones. For things like that, I try to create, um, you know, I have several phones. You know, one is super personal. That is like something that I have under a different name. You can do that, right? Throwaways work. But that's security through obscurity, unfortunately. You know, someone eventually will find it, you know? But yeah, this is it's always interesting to see these kind of attacks. I know when we talked about, I'm not sure which one it was, the one where the, the guys created, I think it was NSO Group, right? Where they created like this payload that had like a virtual machine within it, within the payload. Yeah, I think so. I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that I mean, when I when I read these stories, I'm fascinated from a security nurse perspective because of the level of detail and intricacies involved in the exploitation process. It's always different, much more different than the post-compromise scenario, right? The it seems like companies, security researchers, uh, defenders, etc. They tend to find a compromise after it's done, which goes to kind of show you something, or at least it tells me something. I feel like some of these groups that create these exploits and exploit kits, they probably have some really sophisticated actors, developers, researchers on the initial entry portion, right? And then they have probably a different group handling the post-intrusion scenario because the methodologies always seem a bit different. I mean, look at this attack here, right? The attackers come up with a zero-day attack, a zero-click attack to make it even worse. And then once they're in your system, what are they doing, right? They don't have valid, they don't have legitimate persistence. So it's basically a drive-by attack, right? Uh, the second thing is once they're in the system, what are they doing? They're creating a backup agent and backup agent too, right? Now they're creating a lot of noise in the background. And that to me is always weird because the level of sophistication in the initial entry versus the level of sophistication on the post-compromise is always... I feel like this is a, it's just unbalanced. Uh, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm looking at it weird, but I hope you see what I'm saying, Chris. Yeah, I mean, my initial thought is you're saying that. I mean, I didn't think about this when I read the article. My initial thought is that, you know, okay, we found this cool way to get into the device. This could only, this could stay open for the next 10 minutes, the next hour, the next week, the next year. We don't know how long. Let's just use it now. Let's, you know, and so building the back end, the actual stuff that's, you know, once they're in, not as important or not not done hastily. You would think they would build that part first. Like, hey, let's let's just have this thing off the shelf ready to go. So when we find a way in, yeah. it's clean to go. But but yeah, I hear you. So yeah, uh, the we'll put the links in the description for the articles. Uh, the articles does have the IOCs. Um, that is for the people that write in and say we use too many acronyms. IOCs is <laughs> indicators of compromise. Ooh, uh, fancy. So uh, there's, uh, you know, it needs specialized software and specialized skill sets to see if your phone has been victimized by this. But there's also uh, the article has some the CNC command and control domains um, that were used in this. Did you see anything funny in the command and control uh, domains? Yeah, no, there was a lot of there was a lot of back and forth on Twitter that some of the domains were references to like anime. And then there was like the kind of like the meme, like NSA agents are, you know, anime nerds or whatever. Yeah. So this is a, you know, Hector is alluding to. Um, you know, there's some speculation going back and forth. The the Russian government is saying that this uh, zero click was used to target Russia by the United States' national security agency. Um, yep. we don't have any insight on that whatsoever. Wink, wink. <laughs> no, no winks for me. But you and I are not of like mind on that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, yeah, they're saying that the uh, the domain names, you know, are, are sort of, you know, anime-ish. And, uh, but you and I know that the some of the guys at the NSA like anime, right? Yeah, why not? I mean, they're, they're probably a bunch of young guys. Yeah. With the exception of probably the exploit devs. These are probably like old beards. They've yeah. been around for a while. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if I wanted to make it look like it was the NSA, I'm going to use anime domains. Yeah, gaming domains, anime domains, whatever kind of, you know, you know, fits the mold, right? But that's just, that's the, that's assuming that the NSA is involved. Yeah. 
This could this could easily be done by a private corporation that maybe has a contract with a government. Doesn't necessarily have to be the U.S. government. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, when you start looking at some of these domains, I mean, they're they're not that great. Think about it. I mean, look at the IOCs. I mean, we see some stuff here that, you know, if I was a, a network defendant, I'm looking at traffic on the network side. I'm like, why are we sending traffic to you know some of these goofy domains? Like, who who's on these websites on our corporate network, right? Yeah, so you know, I think that the IOCs, you know, was kind of off there. And you know, the crazy thing is, I think, I think uh, for those of you uh, uh, infosec Twitter followers, if you follow like uh, uh, Swift on security, the, 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 Twi- the Taylor Swift parody account, I think, I think it was dumb. They they mentioned a reference, or they made a reference that, you know, if it was like a government agency, NSA or whatever, they probably have a department that's dedicated to being caught, quote unquote, being caught. And so they'll use goofy indicators of compromise. They'll use goofy methodology. And for the purpose of identifying how they could be tracked in a real-world attack scenario. Now, I think it was the Swift on security. I could be wrong. But I saw that tweet. I was like, wow, you know, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Because that, yes, that gives some interesting, that would, I, would, I would say that would give some good intelligence on, on how these defenders are kind of identifying uh, potential uh, ongoing active campaigns. Yeah, that's a great point. So, interesting stuff. We'll see what develops from this, and uh, we'll keep you guys updated if we see something else come out. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we we would definitely hear so much more after this. Hector, I have told you a hundred times how much my family has loved having HelloFresh. Our very first meal from HelloFresh was a delicious bulgogi meatball. So good. These things were delicious. And the sides, they're fresh and perfectly matched for a terrific balanced meal. These bulgogi meatballs are now a go-to meal for my family when we're having company over, or really when we want to just have a great meal, or hell, even just a Thursday to celebrate a new episode of Hacker in the Bed. Needless to say, HelloFresh is your recipe for success. From foolproof instructions to high-quality proteins and veggies, HelloFresh brings out your inner chef with every tasty, easy-to-prepare meal. HelloFresh has made it so easy for even me to make tasty meals that impresses my mother-in-law. This summer, spend less time meal planning and prepping with HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients that make it easy to get cooking quickly. Get farm-to-table quality with every HelloFresh box. HelloFresh's seasonal ingredients are picked at a peak ripeness and travel from the farm to your doorstep in less than seven days for the freshest flavor in every bite. Go to HelloFresh.com slash H-A-T-F-16 and use our code H-A-T-F-16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Hector, that is 16 free meals with free shipping for using our code HATF16. So go to HelloFresh.com slash HATF16 and use the code HATF16. We are extremely happy to partner with DeleteMe. Not only is DeleteMe a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used DeleteMe long before starting the podcast because of DeleteMe's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of DeleteMe convinced me to start using their services. We talk about personally identifiable information, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit cards, and even stealing your tax returns. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete Me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by privacy adversaries. Their service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information, and Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. 
The removal process starts and you will receive a detailed delete me report in seven days. Then delete me scans and deletes all year long. Delete me's mission is simple to remove customers information from search results. As you know, and we talk about it every week on Hacker in the Fed, this is an important step to securing your online world. Throughout our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker in the Fed listeners get 20% off all customer plans with the code FED20. That's FED20. Go to joindeleteme.com slash FED and use our code FED20, FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash FED and use code FED20, FED20 for 20% off all consumer plans. So the next story you sent over, Hector, is millions of PC motherboards were sold with a firmware backdoor. Ouch. Yeah, that can be a problem. Yeah, it could be a problem. We talk a lot about supply chain attacks here in this podcast. And, you know, for many years, a lot of that was theoretical, right, or hypothetical. Folks always had concerns about this. I know some, I know the government, I mean, we've had conversations that the government has their own process on when they purchase hardware or software, and they kind of look for backdoors or vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're targeting the, you know, the, I would say the end user market, and, uh, you know, you're not going to have so many eyes kind of, you know, debugging and reverse engineering firmware. So, I mean, this was definitely a major problem. You know, you may not, you know, with, a, with an attack like this, you may not be able to get inside like the FBI tomorrow, but you might be able to get an FBI agent's, you know, son at home and get access to the network that way, right? Don't give um, them ideas, you bastard. <laughs> But you get the idea. Supply chain attacks are very scary. And unless you have the skill set to sit down and break apart and reverse engineer every piece of device or every device you bring home, um, more likely you are going to get compromised or something like this. Yeah. So really what this boils down to is there's a Taiwanese uh, motherboard manufacturer, Gigabyte, and they uh, made motherboards that when they're when it restarts, um, there's code within the, the motherboard's firmware, and, and firmware is is code that is is put onto a chip. You know, it's so it's it's it, it's not part of like the operating system that you'd be able to access on your normal computer. So the, the code within this firmware um, initiates an updater uh, program that runs on the computer, and it it turns uh, downloads and executables um, you know from the internet, and it up it updates the firmware on the motherboard. The problem with this is that it was pretty insecurely uh, implemented, um, and it, it doesn't really check uh, sometimes where it's coming from, and it doesn't use any. It doesn't even, on, in some cases, download from a, through a secure website. So you can see where uh, there'd be a lot of problems with uh, just the user not being able to control when their motherboard updates its own firmware from an unsecure site in an unsecure way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it narrow. It kind of boils down to you have an auto-updating feature on your computer or hardware that tries to connect to a, a web server on the internet without HTTPS. Uh, there's no validation taking place. Um, so if an attacker is able to get access to your internal network or they're able to sit somewhere in the middle between you and an update server or they compromise that update server, then at that point, they will be able to kind of upload malicious code rather than firmware that the hardware is expecting or it'll be it'll be firmware that's compromised right it'll have um, an extra payload that'll do something malicious rather than what was intended definitely a problem you know i i know we've kind of discussed a lot when it, when it comes down to conversations about supply chain attacks we talk about well is there anything that a government it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be the u.s it could be anybody that could put limits or some sort of uh, controls or an auditing process prior to a product going live to market. And I mean, I'm sure we've talked about it several times. I don't think that economically would be feasible for most of these companies. You know, I would love to even see how some of these companies deal with cybersecurity on the back end, right? We have no idea. Um, I personally have done a pen test for a hardware company and they were, they were on top. They had all their stick rules. They had like, they had a whole process uh, internal development process. They have uh, security by design. They had like uh, 
a software bill of materials, SBOM, uh, they were on point. But can we expect that from every single company? And that's the scary part. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to expect that from every single company, Hector. I think we've seen uh, time and time again that's not the case. So um, oh, yeah. I don't think we can rely on on that. So. Um, well, now I'm depressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, shit. Now our motherboards <laughs> are all screwed. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, for you gaming aficionados out there, um, Gigabyte is a big gaming ma board manufacturer. So definitely take a look at your devices. Make sure that your firmware is updated to the latest. Um, and definitely check out the vendor's website. In this case, Chris is going to have a link in the description um, and see if you're impacted by this. So your iPhone, it can get a zero-click exploit, and then your motherboard is going to download its viruses for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, we might as well just retire our technology and go back to pen and paper and maybe even a beeper. But even yeah, then, that, that's a tough one. That's Sony's approach when they get when they get pwned. So There you go. Well, I wouldn't know about that, but nope. yeah, I feel you. So I sent over a story. Um, FTC slams Amazon with a $30.8 million fine for privacy violations involving alexa and ring so Yikes. do you remember the the ring hack a few years ago yeah i mean there was there was a couple of incidents for sure so the, the big one came down to a bunch of users got uh, hacked into for their ring devices because of credential stuffing so your out-of-the-box ring account came to you with username and password um did not demand two-factor authentication and it did not demand, um, uh, there wasn't a lockout after so many attempts to enter a username and password. The hackers just went around on other stolen websites um, with the username and passwords are published on the dark web and just used those credentials and saw how many accounts they could open up. And it ended up being millions. Well, look, credential stuffing is very effective. Yeah, but also it's certainly not a sophisticated attack. No, it's not. Absolutely not. I mean, all you really have to do is hit one massive data source or user base and then just, you know, find another service where users may be correlated in some way. Um, or even, you know, even if, if uh, you know, I think in this case in the ring, uh, the ring service, it's random enough that you can say, OK, I think I think I might have even, you know, two percent of users here. I might have their credentials. And as the attacker, you're you're hoping that there's some password reuse. Right. So, yeah, this was a hard one. Um, you know, I think that a lot of companies moving forward should probably want to include or or offer like MFA, multi-factor authentication from the jump. I think that was the main argument against Ring, right? The big so, argument was. No, it was offered. Offer. It was offered. It's just so Ring. Not by default. Ring's, right? whole, yeah, Ring's whole thing is so yeah. out of the box, easy. The stick these little devices on your door, you know, one at the top, one on the, 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 on the door part. So when the, sure. the magnets come apart, the alarm comes off. Easy to use, stick it on your wall, easy. Anybody can set it up. The problem is when you start requiring security, you know, 2FA or, you know, <laughs> complex passwords it's not easy anymore well i mean security is not convenient brother you know how that goes i i know exactly what you're saying but you know and, and again i think ring was wrong in this in this one but i can see their problem um who's gonna buy the device this easy to use device that turns out not to be easy to use true so true. you know yeah. and maybe maybe it was them just being cheap that they didn't want to you know have the customer support available to them to the users that, that found it more difficult to have the, you know, turned on to FA and, or have the, you know, the, the being locked out of their accounts if they try their passwords more than 10 times. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've seen scenarios where a product is ready to go to market and then you, you know, they get involved with investors and the investors like, okay, cool. We got to go to market like ASAP. Now, depending on various circumstances, you know, some of these products are being rushed out the door. Security is kind of second, you know, second thought. The assumption is, well, if you run into a problem, we can fix it later. Let's just get this out the door. Let's make this money right now, right? You know, unfortunately, we see that a lot. I saw that myself. There used to be a kind of like a wireless. You remember those hubs that some companies used to sell? I think they still do, where it's like a little hub, a router that has internet access. It provides internet access over Wi-Fi. Yeah. Right. Uh, not to mention the company's name because they were acquired by another bigger company I don't want problems with. But that company sold a device that allowed anyone with access within range to that device 
to be able to connect over Wi-Fi. Really? And they would get like LTE internet access, right? But here's the problem with it. So I did a little, little reverse engineering, you know, me being bored at home at three in the morning. And I noticed um, that the password, the Wi-Fi password that came by default was predictable. And so I went and bought another device and boom, I was able to predict the second, you know, the password for the second Wi-Fi network or that, that router. Was it the same or was there a pattern? No, the pattern was the device serial number. And when you turn the device on, it would say, you know, wireless network name here for the company, right? Not to mention yeah. the company, underscore the last six digits of the serial number. So if you had the last digits, the last six digits of the serial number, you could predict the password and you would get Wi-Fi internet wherever you found one. And that'll give you access to a lo the local area network. And then you can start compromising the devices within that local area network, right? And so, you know, I've seen, and, and I've seen that way too often, unfortunately, it happens. Um, it kind of goes back to our conversation a few minutes ago about supply chain attacks. Since there's no regulation with some of these organizations, these companies that are kind of releasing products and go to market quickly, um, you know, there's no security by design enforcement, right? There's no auditing process in, involved. And depending on the industry that that device is targeting, it may not be regulated at all, right? It's a major difference when we're talking about a pacemaker from the healthcare industry because they have to go through FDA, they have to go through FTC, they have to go through all these different regulations just for that device to even be accessible by a patient, right? And that's a, that's a multi-year process. Um, but when we're talking about like a ring camera or we're talking about like a Wi-Fi router, those things could be produced today and be out in the streets tomorrow. It's, it's interesting when we have these conversations because it really makes you think. And you start looking around your home and start looking at all these different smart devices you have connected to Wi-Fi network, you're like, okay, how screwed am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. So just to clarify, though, on this article, uh, so $25 million penalty was for breaching the children's privacy laws by retaining their Alexa voice recordings uh, for an indefinite time period. So it was really a, a, a penalty for having children's uh, voices. And so now they're mandated to delete uh, the collected information that includes like inactive children accounts, geolocation data, and voice recordings. And they're also prohibited from gathering such data uh, to train their algorithm in the future. So, you know, not just a monetary uh, penalty, but, you know, also some restrictions placed on them. And then there was an additional $5.8 million in uh, fine for the breaching the user's privacies. Uh, I, oh, guess, yeah. I guess they, were, they had some, uh, the way they had their things set up uh, over there at Ring, mm -hmm. um, uh, that in, any employee or contractor could gain uh, broad and unfettered access to private videos um, in the Ring cameras. And I guess one employee was really abusing that <laughs> over a large amount of time. Um, and finding female users uh, who had cameras in their bedrooms and their bathrooms. Um, wow. Which, what a jerk. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I find it f sort of strange, though, to have a, a camera. Who puts a ring in a bathroom? Yeah, in your bathroom. <laughs> 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 Not to judge. I mean, people can do whatever they want. But I guess nice. I guess maybe one of those, like the, the, one, the, the ones with the screens on it uh, that sure. you know, can play music and all that. I can see where maybe you kind of forget it has a camera on true, it also. True. So. But but certainly, you know, don't want to the noises that are made there. You don't want that recorded. But hold on a second. This All introduces right. this introduces another problem that I tend to uh, to discuss a bit. Oh, we're not going to talk about your bathroom problems, are we? No, 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 no. The ins the, the insider turd problem. Oh, you love that's the 2023. The insider. I get it. Oh, yeah. We've yeah. seen a lot of insider threat issues. This is obviously an old story. You know, you know, the, the, the contractors or employees from from the company, obviously did this several years ago, but um, it goes to show you, you know, you have all of this private data and, and, and information that's, that's being handled by a third party. Theoretically, anybody within that, that third, the, the ecosystem of that third party would probably have access to that data. So it's something to think about, you know, do you really want to put something like a ring? I have a ring. I have the ring in my living room and it's just like, there's not really much happening there. Would I put it in the bathroom? No. Right. So, you know, it, it, it sucks that stuff like this happens. It sucks that you may have a third party listening in here and there. And this is where you come in. You start looking at the risk. You start assessing potential risk. Well, I like listening to music in the bathroom, but I know that Alexa listens or these devices are listening. Do I really want someone listening, potentially listening, while I'm in the bathroom? If your answer is no, take it out of the bathroom, right? Something to think about. 
Not to get political here, but what do you think about a $30.8 million fine for a uh, company that's valued around $1.28 trillion? <laughs> do, you, do you think uh, they're going to learn their lesson from this? or uh... mm, No. Come on, let's be realistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, have you done the math on this? I can imagine it's like an hour's worth of, uh, of fines there. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you reverse engineer it, you kind of figure out, yeah, it's probably a little less than an hour from what they make uh uh, just probably on just their AWS services. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I understand you're not a big government guy, and I understand you're not a big regulation guy. Um, but when there's, there are things like this happening that are egregious, wouldn't you think, and this is, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking, like, honestly, maybe naively, right? But wouldn't you think that a much harsher fine would kind of get the message across, like, hey, guys, we can't screw around here with people's privacy, um, I mean, do you think that instead of it being 30, what was it, 30 million? 30.8, yeah, a little under 31 million. Let's make it more realistic. What if it was $300 million, right? Would that have made a difference on the back end of AWS or, or whatever vendor? I mean, I think it just hurts the stockholders, to be honest with you. Just, they just lose out. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the penalty should be, but like a company this big, I don't think there's a financial penalty that really is, you know, yeah. going to rock the books. You know, sure. But yeah, but you put up a good point, right? If you make a fine that is going to make stockholders nervous and or hurt them, don't you think the stockholders would then hold the uh, leadership at said vendor responsible and maybe even even apply some pressure? I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. the The board is, you know, supposed to listen to the stockholders, sure. and then the board controls who's in charge and makes decisions on things like this. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work. So, yeah, maybe maybe a, a much bigger fine um, is going to do it. But, you know, then again, like, where does an FTC fine go to? Like, where does this $30.8 million go? That is a great question. We should have someone from, from the FTC hop on one time and kind of help us understand that. Because we, we run into this conversation several different times already, right? This is yeah. not the first time we've talked about a supply chain issue or insider threat. If the FTC finds you $30 million, where does that go? So in, uh, just for the people outside the United States, the FTC is the United States Federal Trade Commission. Um, so, But yeah, a listener. If a listener knows where these fines go, that'd be great. Like I understand when a criminal is arrested in the federal system and there is you know, property taken or a fine levied or something like that, um, I understand where that money goes. That money goes to fund undercover federal operations. So. Mm. All mm -hmm. the cryptocurrency that was taken from Ross after the Silk Road arrest, you know, that went to fund other uh, criminal investigations and the undercover operations. So um, I understand yeah. that. So, but when when a you know uh, an organization like the FTC, please reach out. Let us know where where that money goes because you know three hundred million dollar fine that's going to hurt Amazon. But you know what what are we using that money for good? Yeah. Well, according to and this is what you was talking there. I was just doing some quick research. I heard you clicking away. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Uh, according to consumerfinance.gov, they have a breakdown of what actually happens when fines are collected by the FTC. It all depends on the scenario, but for the most part, and this is just to kind of quote consumerfinance.gov directly, all civil penalties are deposited into the civil penalty funds where they are pooled and can be used for payments to any eligible victim. Victims, however, are not limited to receiving only what the person or company that harmed them pay the fund. There's also a story here from CNBC going back to 2019. This was back when Facebook got fined $5 billion. Remember that craziness? Sure. By law, the money goes into, and this, this is specific to the $5 billion that Facebook had to pay. The money goes to the U.S. Treasury's general funds. Um, and there's nothing that could be done with the money. That general fund is basically pays bills, and um, it, might, it might even go to victims, right? Um, but it's not, it's not going to go to, like, general expenses for the U.S. government. So it's going to be sitting in a pool somewhere. Five, I, I forgot $5 billion. That, that one's a hard one. That one's that, a big that, penalty. That was a hard one. Uh, and to be honest, I think it affected Facebook. I mean, yeah. I think fa Facebook changed a lot of policies after that one, yeah. after that story. I think you have to. I think when you face a $5 billion, you have to change something. I mean, that is such a hit that it even it even affects the CEO, Right. The, the guy that's making the most money or, or owns the most equity is going to sit there and say, wow, that actually hit me. We need to make some changes, right? I know that that's not going to be likely for, for, for many of these stories, but 
something to think about. Again, I know you're not a big regulation guy for as much as fines and stuff like that. I, like, I, I get it. I'm not a big government guy either. Um, but something's got to give sometimes. There's got to be some, some sort of medium to deal with these kind of uh, problems, especially if they're repeated offenses, right? Yeah, I mean, if we if we if there's a company out there that's knowingly, you know, overlooking certain security features just to uh, line their pocket, and then, then uh, yeah, I think that's a great time for the regulators to come in and, oh, and yeah. protect people. So that's right. All right, the next one, uh, ironically, I sent over to you, and Ooh. it uh, it sort of was something you've been working on this week. So it yeah. sort of uh, affects your life. So um, uh, security researcher out there goes by Chris Plummer. Uh, he's nice on, name. yeah, he's on Twitter as at Chris Plummer. So reach out to him. Um, you know, big kudos to to him. He found a bug in Gmail. Um, so apparently, the scammers are exploiting a bug in Gmail. Um, Gmail introduced their checkmark system this last month, and he found that scammers are able to bypass the system, and you get the the checkmark on fraudulent emails. Um, in his example, was a company. Um, that use the UPS checkmark uh, on uh, scam emails. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's funny because when you when we kind of talked about the story briefly, I, I just I just started like laughing because I was literally looking into this last week. I'm working on a project. I was like, wow, I saw an email from AWS that came in and it had the blue checkmark in Gmail, and I was blown away by that. So I started looking into what that was. Um, what that is is this. Um, so that blue check mark is part of the brand indicators for message identification or BIMI and is an email standard that lets you add a brand logo to authenticated messages sent from your domains. Imagine a scenario. You have a business and you send an email out and you run into, you know, potential spam issues, spam folder issues, because even though you've, you've run your business for the last 30 years, uh, your logo is not trademarked. You don't have... Uh, any real online branding going on, it's very hard to to verify, you know, that you're the actual owner of the domain. Um, so Google allowed, or rather added, this this uh, protocol to their kind of ecosystem, their email system. Now, with a BIMI record, you're able to to kind of validate who you are when you're sending an email, and when the recipient, which is usually a Gmail client, receives the email they'll basically get like a validated blue check mark saying that, okay, the email that came in from this person is legitimate. And there's a whole process here, ladies and gentlemen. Trust me, I was looking into this. You have the BIMI, right? You have the BIMI protocol that allows you to, or standard rather, that allows you to add a branded logo to your emails. And that's also, um, you know, in, in correspondence with something called VMC, a verified mark certificate. So in order for you to get that blue check mark, you have to go through, um, at the very least, four individual steps just to get to that point. And one of the most important steps, and Chris, we've talked about this before, is that you have to trademark your logo. And I'm not sure if any of you out there, listeners, I'm sure maybe there's going to be at least, at least one of you that tried this. To trade your, trademark your logo, we're talking about like a minimum, uh, you know, one to two year process. And it's expensive. It's not cheap. You may even need to hire an attorney to help you do it. Uh, once you have that trademark, then you create an SVG uh, or basically a, a very specific image format copy of your logo. You have to upload that to you know, uh, a service that will allow you to create a, a verified mark certificate of the logo. And then you have to create a DNS record, a BIMI record, that is hosted on your domain that Google could look up and validate the trademark, the image, logo, and email. You also require to have DMARC set up. We've talked about that before, as well as SPF and DKIM. Again, we've talked about all these topics before. Um, after you set all that stuff up, you have a beautiful blue check mark next to your email that validates and authenticates who you are. But, Chris, I know you found this story, so I want to get into the details. Somebody found a way to abuse that without having to spend two years on a trademark, right? Yeah, exactly. They were able to get through the system um, and they bounce it through a couple different systems and voila, uh, they'll send it to you and it'll have a blue check mark and it'll have the logo next to it too. Oh yeah, and it looks it looks insane. For those of you that have not received one of these emails yet, uh, you know, companies like UPS or AWS or Amazon rather, 
you're going to notice if you're, especially if you are on Gmail or a Google workspace, you're going to start noticing these blue check marks. Now, here's where it gets kind of iffy, right? There's another person, another researcher, uh, Christoph Derry, and he posted something on LinkedIn um, that kind of broke down exactly what happened here, okay? It seems like, and I, I definitely read the links, ladies and gentlemen, because this is, this is a nice post. I definitely give this guy some credit because he, he did some research into this. But it seems like the way the attacker or the researcher was able to kind of avoid having to do the trademark issue, having to, you know, deal with the BIMI records and the certificates and DMARC and all that stuff, they found a way to look for, I would say, a shared IP space um, that was kind of accepted or allowed to send emails from the domain in question that was configured in the SPF record. If you configure an SPF record, remember, we talked about this before, um, an SPF record is kind of a way to uh, authorize the email sending from a domain. If you configure your SPF record to authorize Microsoft's entire IP range, then that means that any IP or server within that Microsoft IP range would be able to send an email as you, um, granted they have you know, all the other variables in place. And in this case, they would inherit that blue check mark and show up as a validated email. Pretty bizarre stuff. You know, you say it all the time. That if these guys would work this hard the, uh, to not commit crime, they could make pretty good money in cybersecurity. 100%. You know, they would do great. Um, you know, it's, it's again, it's fascinating to see this kind of research. Again, big shout out uh, to Chris Plummer and, of course, uh, you know, Christoph Derry here. Uh, this is interesting research. This is the kind of stuff that could be used for major phishing or social engineering or spear phishing campaign. It's interesting. Interesting. You see those attack vectors. Uh, when uh, Chris Blummer initially sent this to Google, Google closed it and said they won't fix that. It's an intended behavior. <laughs> so, but apparently, uh, you know, uh, he was persistent. And uh, big kudos to Chris on that. Uh, persistent in finding it and persisting pushing on uh, Google to get it. Uh, he started making his way into the news, and sure. after all that, uh, Google said that it was an error, um, and then now it's a P one top priority to uh, to correct this well imagine the scenario right you're, you're google you introduce this really cool standard i think it's cool i'm always for authentication and validation and all that good stuff so it's an extra layer okay um and it also requires a lengthy process which is the global trademark that's not that's not easy to get okay so i'm cool with that i'm cool with the idea but then part of the authentication process or validation process is you're relying on yet another protocol to authenticate or authorize, rather, emails as part of the system. But that protocol is not managed by you, and that's actually managed by the end user. So if Chris, for example, sets up a personal domain and he authorizes half the internet to send emails as that domain, what is Google supposed to do at that point? Right. So I could see when they first got that email, they're like, well, it is what it is. It's part of it's part of the protocols, right? Yeah, but Google's customers are relying upon them to do the work. And if exactly. they see that blue check mark, you know, that you're saying, that's saying, hey, Google's, we checked this out and it, were, it, it, it's, it's, it is what it is. You know, we talked last week how the blue check mark sort of went away on Twitter um, yeah. now that anybody can buy it. But th mm -hmm. this is Google standing behind this blue check mark. It's not, you know, it's not yeah. a, a paid account. Oh, yeah. Well, it also introduces another point, right? Which is, can we really trust a third party to validate someone for us, right? When blue check marks were a thing on Twitter, the biggest problem that folks like Elon Musk and others had was, well, it seems like people are being handpicked for blue check mark verification. And it just so happens to be a lot of celebrities and people in power, right? Um, normal people just couldn't get access to it. I, I don't know how I got the blue check mark. I think someone somewhere at Twitter probably liked me, but the reality is, is that uh, which is usually not the case. People tend not to like me, unfortunately. I like you. No, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope the listeners like me. They do. Um, I've seen the emails. They definitely like. You. <laughs> um, but no, the biggest concern that people like Elon Musk had with Twitter before the, the acquisition was: Are we dealing with a bit of like nepotism here? Right? Is there? Uh, you know, backroom deals where folks are shaking hands for these blue check marks. Who's actually getting these and what's the process, right? And I get that because even in this scenario, let's look at the companies that probably own their logos in, in, in regards to trademarks, right? 
These are usually massive companies. The AWS is the Microsoft of the world. Now, can Naxo get a trademark logo? Yeah, absolutely. But that's going to take you several years and probably a few grand, right? If you wanted that blue check mark tomorrow, do you think do you think Google's going to help you out with that? No. Not so much. No. No. You're going to have to spend a few grand in a few years before you can enjoy that blue check mark. So, yeah, I, I understand the arguments on both sides here. I personally like it. But would that mean that if I see a blue check mark email, I'm going to immediately trust it? No. And I want the audience to be always, always be critical. Regardless if there's a blue check mark or not, you see an email come in, you see something come in, you know, try not to trust it like right off the bat, because it might might be a scenario like this where someone found a way to kind of abuse it. Always in brand new technology, people are gonna find a way of abusing it. So I've never seen a perfect system set up. So yeah. That's great advice, Hector. Oh yeah. Well, when you have security being implemented by humans, there tends to be some issues, right? So the next story you sent over to me was about security.txt. Security.txt now mandated for the Dutch government websites. This is a, a new standard that the Dutch put out for all of their websites and applies to all government sites, such as national governments and the provinces, municipalities, and water boards. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about security.txt. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I personally like the concept. I also understand the pros and cons of something like this. I've also heard the arguments on both sides for this. First, what is uh, it? Yeah, security text is a proposed standard. Uh, and this is right from their website. You go to securitytext.org, uh, TXT, not the full text, but the E. Um, and essentially what it does is it allows websites to define their own security policies. Inside those policies, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a text file. So it's nothing complex. You don't have to build an application for this. You could create a text file. It follows their standard. And inside the standard, you have things like, you know, uh, here's our PGP key if you want to send us a sensitive email. Um, if you need to contact uh, our security engineers, here's the email, you know, security at naxo.com. Um, if you want to take a look at our security policy, here's the link to it. It's pretty straightforward. It was created by some researchers. Um, you know, for, so for those, those of you that watch YouTube or, or um, like, you know, cybersecurity content, you, you have Ed Overflow. I don't want to mess up this, this gentleman's name, but Yakov Shavrinovich, I think that's his name. Uh, these guys proposed a standard. It's been implemented by a lot of organizations and governments like Google, Facebook, the UK government, et cetera. Now, let me kind of give you more context. Why is this security tech standard interesting to someone like me? And why is it being pushed by the Dutch government? Okay. Have you guys ever been to a website where you find a bug, you see someone else's account info, um, you know, you see an error or exception that's very verbose and it looks very scary. Um, it looks like that's it's something you should not be seeing. You go to the contact page, you see a form. You don't want to fill out the form. Um, you go to you send an email to like info at domain.com and you get a bounce back error message. You go on LinkedIn and you find somebody that works at a company. By then you're already tired. You don't want to deal with this nonsense. Um, you either give up or you find someone that completely ignores you on LinkedIn. Okay. What this standard is supposed to do is provide researchers and individuals, uh, like the listeners here, a place to identify and locate a security contact that will get you directly in front of someone for that organization, okay? It's pretty badass. It works very well. It's a very cool standard. straightforward. It's very simple. Again, it's just a text file on your web server. But I want to give you guys some cons because I, I gave you the positives, Okay, and then Chris will go into you know why the Dutch government went this route. Some of the cons that I've been hearing is that a lot of security researchers will target websites that have the security text file on the web server. They'll start to look for vulnerabilities in that web server, even if the organization itself doesn't have a bug bounty program. They'll send the email in like, "Hey, I found an SSL issue," which is usually very common, and they're expecting a bug bounty payment which can become very annoying, especially if you as an organization do not have a bug bounty program or policy in place. Um, or maybe you don't have the budget to pay anyone, right? So, um, you know, that's a con. You know, I personally think it's a cool idea. I would love to see more of this happening. But Chris, as you read more into the story, why do you think the Dutch government decided to kind of move forward with the standard? I think they there was a problem. They, they, they're, this is their reaction to... Um unsecure sites uh, and wanting to have more security, um, providing people an access point. We've talked about it on, on past issues. Even if it's an FBI agent, I haven't been able to get a hold of the right people 
Um, you know, there's not some magic phone book to look through. And, you know, I found a, you know, I, I had a source that said there was a hole in um, CBS. I think I recently told this story and I couldn't find anybody right. at CBS to reach out to. So I called Les Moonves. Um, that's not the proper way of going through these things. You know, that's not the proper channels. And now that spins up everybody at the top because now you have the FBI reaching out to the head of a major uh, U.S. organization. And, you know, that just gets everyone's all bent out of shape. So um, I think this is a good approach to put it out there. I just think it's ripe for abuse. It could be, 100%. Especially if, if you as the, you know, the, the folks in charge of the organization you're a bit too verbose <laughs> in, in using the standard, meaning you start putting contact details for individual security engineers. Now you're kind of opening the door for those individual security engineers to become part of a social engineering or a spear phishing campaign, right? Um, you want to keep this general. You create a domain or rather email like security at naxo.com. You said, you know, as a researcher, you know that someone somewhere, more likely Chris, is going to read that email once it comes in. But you don't know that it's Chris, right? It could be another security engineer at Naxo. Um, I think that if, if you if if you kind of follow the standard, you keep it pretty general. Even the the example they give on the website at securitytext.org, that's very straightforward, very simple. You know, yeah, you might get some spam, unfortunately. That's just the way how the world works. But I think there's some benefits for sure. But I, I think um, you're going to get buried in that spam. I think that's the major <laughs> flaw in the system. Yeah. Is that you're going to get buried in you know these these reports that aren't real, yeah. and, and then you're going to become you know oh, I'm not going to check that account for you know a couple of days I'm not mm. going to check that account for a week and it's just going to get lost. That's a very good point. That's a very good point because you become desensitized to these security reports. Yeah, it's human nature that you know, and so so how do you know the, the real ones bubble to the top? I think it's going to be an issue. I think that you're going to have a couple of different iterations of this. Yeah, but then, okay, so let's, let's, let's say that you, you, you don't follow the standard. You say, screw it. You know what? I'd rather someone just call my phone, right? What's going to stop the same spammers as just calling your phone number every day or they're sending you text messages, SMS spam, right? It's going to be the same problem. You know, I, I kind of also understand why people have like, the contact forms because then from the contact form, you could start to, you know, like look at what's coming in and identify what may be legitimate or not, and you can make the reach out yourself, right? So I think that's that's probably like a secondary factor. But here's the problem with that: I do not like filling out contact forms. No, <laughs> not at all. Oh yeah, not at all. So you know, like you know, you're gonna get the the proton mails and all that. You know, yeah, oh, yeah. it's just gonna be. <laughs> it's gonna take a little while. So if there's any shitheads out there thinking they're gonna abuse this one, please don't. Sure. This is a great thing. I think it's a good good thing. It's gonna solve. Sure. You know, it's gonna get the message to the right people. You know, yeah. much much quicker. Let's try not to abuse it. Well, people tend to abuse cool things. So yeah, that's true. Well, hopefully, hopefully, uh, some of the people in the audience can take a look at that the link and you know identify whether or not or kind of figure out whether or not. Um, it'll be useful for them. But big shout out to the Dutch government. I mean, I, I'm always happy to see a government taking security serious. I'm a big fan of that. I want to see more of that here in the U.S. I would I would really love to see more, and not necessarily the security tech standard, but to see more things in place, like DMARC records, right? We had a conversation not that long ago, maybe a couple months ago, um, where we talked about there was a research project a guy did looking at millions and millions of email domains, right, or domains in general, looking at the email security and then identifying um, that a big portion of them did not even have like DMARC set up, which would, which would mitigate some spoofing attacks. Um, here in the U.S., at least, there should be some sort of uh, initiative, and I'm sure there is, especially from CISA, that like each government domain, any domain that ends with like .gov or .mil, right, these should probably have DMARC and SPF records and DKIM enabled um, to kind of mitigate spoofing attacks. I'm not sure we have that in place. Maybe one day we'll find out. But um, yeah, man, that was a cool story. Yeah, no, it was very interesting. So all good stories today. So uh, yeah. uh, another good episode of Hacker in the Fed. I appreciate the Ooh. conversation. If uh, listeners have any questions, we always love hearing from the listeners. Reach out to Hector and I at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector, we got mm -hmm. a lot of good ones this week. I think we'll probably have another episode in the near future of nothing but user questions. Nice. So let's uh, like let's, let's yeah, exactly. I love them too. So let's fill that inbox with even more, so we can mm -hmm. pick through and uh, and pick out the best ones. Again, it's at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Reach out to us. 
A new episode every Thursday. Uh, download, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, tell your friends. Um, put it out on social media. Let's get a buzz going on Hacker and the Fed. We're putting out a lot of good information, and uh, I think people can find it useful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, that 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 big episode we did um, on pig butchering was amazing. The responses I got were just out of this world. Yeah, no, Aaron West was a great guest, and uh, she's uh, she's been pushing us on social media, so it's been good. Love it. Yeah. So <laughs> big shout out to her. Another fun show, Hector. I appreciate the conversation, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Sounds good, my brother. Looking forward to it as well. All right, brother. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.